And welcome back to Back on the Ball with Dean Edwards and Colin Lee and me, David Fitzgerald. And we're talking about just that, coming back. Coming back home. Well, one of you's come back home because, Colin, you are Devon born and bred? I am, yes, yes. I was uh, born in Torbay Hospital, so definitely came back home. Is there a little blue plaque there? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so, no. (laughs) No, I mean, to be quite honest, I never thought I would end up living back in Devon right. um, because my career took me around England quite a bit really but I mean in particular London uh, the Midlands mm. and I thought we were settled in the Midlands but I was actually working for England at the time when Steve McLaren and Terry Venables were in charge I was flying all over the world really watching the opponents and giving you know my opinion on certain players and back in this country I was searching for new players for England for them it was a, an exciting job Right. Um, it took up a lot of time when I was away from home as well, quite often, because obviously a lot of this was overseas. But great experience, a fantastic experience. But uh, you never played for an overseas club, did you? No, I didn't. No, no. I mean, I played abroad, uh, pre-season games and end-of-season games and played in exhibition games and stuff like that. But uh, no, I've never, ever signed for a, an overseas uh, club before now. Did you, Dean? Did you play abroad? Yes, I certainly did. When I left Shrewsbury, after four years there, I went out to a club in Finland called... Well, the first club I went to was called Corpion Palacera, who were in the Premier League of the Finnish League. And then I moved from there to Vars and Palacera, who had UC Eskilainen playing for them. Wow. And a lad called Roy Essendo, who people might remember from his exploits for Wickham against Leicester. Those lads and myself, we played for Vasa. Uh, and also, at the end of my career, I went out to Sleema Wanderers at Malta. Oh, wonderful place. Yeah, with a lad who was at Torquay, John Muir. And then we, and then I went to Hong Kong, which was a phenomenal place. Best place I've ever visited. And that had some stories, which will come down in a later podcast. Really? But it, it was... Um, but run them past me first. <laughs> yes, obviously. I've got to make sure our solicitors are, are on it. But, yeah, no, it, it, I mean, playing abroad, you see the lads now, like Bellingham and all that, going... A, I think that's what they do now. I mean, rather than go on loan to championship sides and League Two and League One sides, yep. they send them out abroad. And I think it's a great education because the cultures are so different. Well, you did mention solicitors there. Our thanks to Wallen Solicitors, who are sponsoring this podcast, and also to Greenwood Accountants. Uh, they've been very kind and stepped forward, which allows us to look back at some great stories. Actually, Malta, the weather there. Actually, there's no grass either. <laughs> no, they, they've got a new stadium now. It's called, Have they? Yeah, it's called Tahali. I mean, abroad, it just seems to go from one extreme to another. The lads picked us up. He was obviously the club golfer from the airport, me and John, and we're in this car, and I could literally see the floor. Yeah, <laughs> through that's the, Malta. Through yeah. the car, <laughs> car floor, and I'm thinking, what's going on here? But they've put us in this luxurious hotel. Um, we've trained on a, a lovely AstroTurf pitch. And then they've built a new stadium there, like I said, called Tahali. What it is, I mean, the groundsmen must be superb because they play four games over the weekend on it. They play two on the Saturday and two on the Sunday. And then the week after, another section of the league played two on the Saturday and two on the Sunday. So you only actually play every two weeks. Yeah. So I'd fly back and then fly fly out again um, when I felt like it. Um, then other times I'd just stay there and... But it wasn't the best place to be. So when I say it wasn't the best place to be, they had a place called St Julian's Bay there. They do, which yeah. was very lively. Mm. Yeah, we spent more time in there than we really should have. 
St. Julian's is fine. Then you look up behind you and there's the big rubbish tip behind you. And then uh, beautiful seas. Uh, great. Now, what was the cocktail I was on? No, that's been wiped from my memory. Must have had too many. I remember waking up one morning wearing nothing but one sock. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, I wasn't by the pool. <laughs> well, funnily enough, while we were over there, there was there was lots of talk about Oliver Reed. Yes. Because he lived over there and he was notorious for drinking pubs dry. And there was a story at one stage that he was out there with Alex Oricaniggins yes. and George Best. The three of them in the pub at the same time. Unfortunately, I was actually on holiday there because my then television company sent me to look for them. Uh, <laughs> that was one drinking session I wasn't getting involved I was, in. Yeah, I missed that one. Sadly, um, and rather ironically, he died on Malta as well when he, he did. was filming Gladiators. He so, did. Uh, yeah. And uh, I remember covering yes. that on, on Sky News. What a shame. A man greatly, greatly missed. That goes back to the time when you were... Uh, Started off in your BBC presenting when you kept getting disasters. <laughs> I must admit, and I'll repeat this, yes, every time I sat down um, on one particular station, uh, things would happen. And I think it was seven plane crashes, three earthquakes, the Bosnian War broke out, Waco. Uh, <laughs> it just goes on and on. Uh, good evening. Yeah, not too bad, yeah. Not many dead this time round. <laughs> It was it was absolutely um, uncanny the way that um, I walk into a disaster. Rather like my dad, actually. He was the last person up the Suez Canal, 19, whenever it was, 67. They had to close that. He went to Israel and the Six-Day War broke out. Uh, just after the war, I think he was he was in America and uh, John Dillinger got shot behind him or something of that late. He was, he, was a, he was a disaster looking for somewhere to happen, just like me. You just follow the family tradition. Or... I do, yeah. Coming back home. I love coming well, back coming back down to Devon. But playing abroad, physically, it was tough. I had a friend who played in Saudi, and you did it in the evenings or in their winter, which was, what, 80, yeah. <laughs> 80 degrees. Hong Kong must have been humid. Well, Hong Kong, we used to, we used to play at 8 o'clock at night, and you'd just put your kit on, and then you'd go out onto the pitch, and you'd just be, you'd just be soaked. It yeah. was just so humid out there. But it was, you know, it was a, the place was phenomenal. I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever visited it, but just to see, it was like being in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, you'd go past a, a billboard up on the on one of the buildings and you'd have Michael Jackson here tomorrow and you'd go, didn't realise they had tribute tax here. But it was Michael Jackson. Obscene you know, amounts of I, money you, in those days, yeah, before 97. Yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, the, the lad who was the chairman of our team, he, um, I mean, he, he used to take us out all the while. He took me into a club once and he'd, he'd sort of been looking after us for the old time I was there. I'd been there about six months and I was on good money and we played the one game and there was an envelope on the tells and I think there was two grand in each envelope and when we come back in, we were 3-0 no down, they're gone. <laughs> the envelopes are gone. But uh, I went into a private club with him one night and, and he picked me up in this gold Rolls Royce and then we got into the club and I thought, it's about time I bought him a drink. And I said, can I buy you a drink? He went, no, you don't, you don't spend money in it. He said, they just bill me at the end of the month. <sighs> and it was just, and then obviously the, the race tracks as well, the Happy Valley, and that was unbelievable. Happy Valley was a great race course, yeah. And one of the few countries I've been arrested in. <laughs> anyway, let's go on with the uh, podcast. <laughs> long story, very long and controversial story. And I was, I was actually, I was innocent. I, actually, I'll tell you, I was supposedly I was out there filming and I was accused by then the Chinese state police of filming without permission. 
but no, they wanted um, they wanted a little more assurance. Yeah, yeah, so, oh, that goes on a lot. Yeah, it does. Anyway, where was I? Where was I? What's talking about? Oh, yeah, coming back home. Was it good coming back to Torquay? Do you regret taking over? No, not at all. Not at all. Because you know, I was as I said earlier, I was working for England. I got a phone call from uh, Tony Boyce. Tony and I were really good friends, and when I left Torquay to sign for Tottenham. Tony Boyce was the chairman and, and he kept in contact with me throughout my career and gave me a huge amount of, of advice in terms of property development and yeah. that sort of stuff. So Tony was, was absolutely brilliant for me. And every time I came down to Torquay, we used to go out for breakfast and have chats about what I was going to do when I finished playing football. So I had this call from Tony and it was the, the time that Mike Bateson had given up on Torquay really and, and decided to call it a day. The club was going to go into, well, it was just going to disappear basically if someone didn't take over. So True. Tony said to me, I, I, I cannot let my club go under, he said, and would you be prepared to come down and have a talk about things? And he said, I've put together the start of a consortium. I'd like you to come down and, and try and rebuild what he called his football club. And I'm thinking, you know, do I really want to do this? I'm fine in the Midlands. I'm working for England and everything else. So I obviously came down, met the consortium. They didn't really know a lot about the way a football club should be run, how to rebuild a football club, because at that time there were about three players left and about two or three members of staff at Torquay United. So I thought, well, you know, Tony has been so good to me that I need to really try and think this through properly and come up with the right answers. Well, obviously, I accepted the job. And I, again, met with the, the consortium. And I was told that I had to have a three-year contract, but ultimately was told that it was a job for life. Right. You know, being a local lad, someone who obviously had a, a great affection for Torquay United. So I spoke to the wife. We decided that, you know, in that particular situation that possibly I should come and do something different and it was a big it's a big challenge for me as well Fitch you know a massive challenge to try and rebuild a football club 24 hours before the signing of the agreement I had a phone call from the LMA which is the League Manners Association who were dealing with a previous problem with with Torquay uh, when Mike Bateson uh, asked me to come down and become director of football and then he decided to leave I still had a contract and I was told just to leave. There was no negotiations on paying a contract up or a figure to let me go away, because obviously I would have been completely out of work. Right. And it just happened that 24 hours before I was taking over as the chief executive, the, the LMA phoned me and, and said to me that we're 100% or 99.9% sure that we can win this case, and Torquay United owe you £150,000. Cool. Now, you know, how could I become the chief executive of Torquay United, taking that particular club to court just didn't work, obviously. So it was a major decision. I spoke to my lawyer, who was also the uh, the lawyer of, of Torquay United as well. Is that legal? Well, and as I say, my decision was made simply because, um, although I was signing a three-year contract, really the, the, the way I looked at it was, yes, this, this could be a job for life. So it could be a job that puts me in work for the next 10 years, for example. It takes me back to Torquay, <coughs> and I'm sure that I can do well at Torquay United and, and make it a, a, a club that can survive in the Football League. 
So the only way that I could become chief executive was to sign off, which done away with the court case, done away with £150,000 worth of my money, and became the chief executive of Talk United. Over the three-year period that I was in charge, it was fantastic. It was a fantastic achievement from a club that was going out of existence to a club that ended up playing at Wembley twice, um, hit the post the first season trying to get promotion mm. and got promotion into the Football League the following season through the playoffs. And obviously we were at the early stages of establishing ourselves in the Football League. And I had a, a phone call one morning to say that the chairman and uh, one of the directors wanted to see me. And I phoned another director who I thought could give me an idea of what was going on albeit at the back of my mind something didn't seem right. He didn't want to talk to me, so I knew there was something wrong. And I ended up meeting the two, funny enough, at the Grand Hotel in Torquay, and uh, to be told that they'd no longer wanted my services. they decided at a board meeting that they were going to run the football club themselves, and this particular director was going to be in charge of football, this one was going to be in charge of advertising, promotion, all that sort of stuff. And I sat there and said, look, you're making a huge mistake here because none of you know how to run a football club. No. You know, it's like, I don't know, someone from, you know, the corner shop next door asking them to run Harrods, if you like. You know, it's just, it's never going to work. So I said, well, look, you've got a fantastic foundation here at your football club. I'm really pleased that I've been able to put that in place. But if it's not continued along the right lines, I will give you 18 months and I'm sorry to say, I think you'll be going backwards. And I'm sat here now, and I get emotional because look what's happened. It's so sad. And the fans are now suffering. Um, I'm not having a go at, at, at anyone in particular, especially the manager. I've been a manager, and I know what it's like. And, and sometimes, you know, you try all sorts of things, and it doesn't work. So, you know, I think that it is sad what's happened to Torquay. I just, hopefully, they can turn this season around because at the moment they're not that far off the playoffs I still in my in, in my my own feelings are they can still do it yeah yeah, yeah. you know um but when they turned on you that day mm, and I was sat beside you yeah I mean I I felt the hurt yeah you yeah I was I was ups well not upset I was shocked at the way fans can react I think what it is Fitz is is you know they they react without thinking you know they they forget where they came from yeah you know when I took on the club there wasn't a club you know, there were three people there, three players, and one wanted to leave. So I don't want a player at my football club that don't want to stay, so off you go, you can go. Hmm. Even looking back to when I appointed Paul Buckle, there was eruptions. But I knew Paul Buckle as a young player. I, I managed Paul Buckle as a kid at Brentford. Uh, he, was, he was let go by Watford, came into Brentford, and I schooled Paul Buckle, and I knew about him. And I went up to Exeter, sat in the stand and watched what he was doing before games. He took the warm-up and things like that. And um, I got a really good vibe about it because I didn't know that league. And I needed someone who knew that league. And Paul Buckle, working with Exeter City, knew that league. And he knew the type of players. And between us, we built that football club back up, you know? Yeah. And what really hurt me was when they got rid of me and the headlines in the paper was, oh, we've got rid of Colin to a degree over £600,000 in debt. And I'm going, yeah, but I, I never spent your money. You know, every single penny that was spent at Torquay United when I was the chief executive, and any, any club will tell you this, has to go through 
the directors and the, and the chairman. I didn't spend the money. What I did is I took the options to them and they chose the options. And that for me is, that was probably the saddest bit. But going back to when the crowd turn on you, they turn on you because sometimes the pressures of losing, they can't handle. Yep. And I've said it before in many interviews that if you're going to be involved in a football club, you've got to be able to handle the losses or the disappointments to be able to enjoy the success stories more. Yeah. But my period at Torquay United, very, very proud of. Dean, let's bring you in because you, you took over partially, but way after, way after <clears throat> these events. Yeah, well, Colin brought me into the club as commercial manager. Me and Colin had a great relationship and obviously we was, I was probably there about, what, six months, three months, something like that, before they, he came and told me that they were getting rid of him and I, I was shocked to the core. I mean, Colin's a bit more reserved than I am, but I'm a bit more brutal when it comes to pointing fingers because, you know, again, Colin said, Torquay United are a very lucky club, very lucky, and the supporters are lucky as well, and I don't think they realise it. They've been to Wembley in their history more times than Plymouth and Exeter. And, I, and like Colin said, I don't think they realise when they've got a good thing. Now, when Colin left, I just seen disaster wrote all over it because I think between Colin and Paul Buckle, they had the best recipe for success than they would have ever had for a very long time. So Colin left the building and, you know, I, I saw what the aftermath of it and there was nine millionaires and one multi-millionaire running the club. Now, after the first meeting I had with the board after Colin left, they were going to get rid of me because they said it was a conflict of interest. They said that I was Colin's mate mm. um, and they wanted to get rid of me. And the problem was I'd moved back down from the Midlands to Torquay and it was a big move for me, you know. I just bought a house in the area and, I, you know, if Colin had gone to another club and took me with him, I would have gone. But that didn't materialise and I ended up staying at Torquay. So, obviously, Buckle left as well. Now, Paul Buckle, I thought, was a great manager. I thought he'd done well for Torquay. I said to him on the day he left for Bristol, I said, do you really want to go from here to Bristol? I mean, they play at... But they were playing at Bath City's yeah. ground at the time. And he went, they haven't even asked me to stay. And I said, okay. I said, well, that's a mistake in itself. Anyway, he went off and uh, and then who did they bring in after Buckle? I think it was Martin Ling came in. That's it. Martin yeah. Ling came in. Now, Lingy came down. And Lingy was a good lad. I mean, you know, he's a proper East Ender. You know, his, his outlook on it, life was just, he was an happy-go-lucky chap and uh, he used to love a drink and he used to, I mean, we went to one pre-season game, we are playing Burnley and we are in this local bar before the game with Eddie O and that and um, about one o'clock I reminded him he should be getting back because he's got a game the next day and he said, well, I'll, I'll manage better with an hangover. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to be fair, the first couple of months of his uh, reign, he didn't do very well. Uh, we were getting beat and, you know, I think we got knocked out of the cup by Arrogate. Uh, one nil, and then he, he, he just clicked. I think Brian Saw got uh, sent off in a match, and they brought in the local lad Mark Ellis, and he had a great pairing with. I think it was could have been Guy Branston, but they they done really well and took off. Yeah, he, he got us into the playoffs. Now this is where I talk about fans, uh, and I read them. Is that I think we got to play Cheltenham in the uh, playoffs, and we went to Cheltenham and got beat 2-0. And Lingy made a massive mistake in that game because he played an unfit Renio uh, and he came off and he put on Toyo Atieno 
who scored in the 85th minute, made it 2-1. So coming back to play more, I'm thinking, right, we've got a great chance here. Now in the league above us, we've got Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday, there was another couple of big name clubs. And I thought if we can get into that next level where Colin was trying to take us, I thought Torquay can write their own history here now. So basically, um, we got Cheltenham down at home and the, there was 3,400 fans in the ground and I, I couldn't believe it. I'm thinking to myself, you know, it, you need to have it full here. To, we need to get a, you know, get an early goal and we can win this. We got beat 2-0. And after the game, I thought, this club's changed, it's gone. This is where the, this is the catalyst there, it's just gone. And I don't know what it was, whether the fans didn't believe it or whether the, the board didn't believe it or whether the manager didn't believe it. But anyway, it fizzled out. Lingy went into the next season, he had his troubles. Um, where he had a bit of a mental health breakdown. And uh, then they bought Alan Nil in. Alan Nil came in. He had a good few games. And again, being managers at times, yeah, I saw where it went wrong. We played Rochdale at home and we were nil-nil. And I thought, he doesn't want this replay. He needs to win this game today. And he made substitutions with about 20 minutes to go. They were the wrong substitutions and we got beat 2-0. And the fans turned on him. So we went down to Plymouth at the Christmas time and we got beat 4-1 and we got heavily battered there. And I've never seen so much dog's abuse at a manager in my life. It was, yeah. it was disgusting. Then after that, your man Chris Hargreaves came in. Great guy. He took us down. Lovely lad, Chris. Lovely. But he had his flaws. I said to him the one day, Wes Saunders, an old manager, said to me, look, Dino, we've got two lads from Sunderland here. He said, Sunderland have said, you can have them for free. But if you don't play them, you've got to pass £500 a week. <clears throat> so I said to Chris, Chris, they're playing at Southampton in an under-23 game. You're going to go and watch them. We can for free. Yep, yep, I'll be down tomorrow, he said. He said, I'll watch that. The next day he came in, he never mentioned it. And I said, did you watch those lads, Chris? He went, I had to pick my daughter up from ballet. And I went, right, OK. Now, knowing the preparation that Colin had put in and what all the preparation, even just recruiting a manager, for me, that didn't sit well. So in my mind, I thought, well, you know, what's going to happen is going to happen. So at the time, the, all the boards started getting a bit disinterested, whether they were running out of money, whether they couldn't be bothered, whether they just lost interest. I don't know what it was, but they bought in a lad called Kelvin Thomas, who'd come from America. Uh, he tried to buy a couple of clubs before. Kelvin, to me, was a great lad. I liked Kelvin a lot. Thea had recruited him to find, him a, find buyers for the football club. And he was there roughly three months and I used to go and have a beer with him, have a meal with him, just chat with him. And he said, I'm really struggling here, Dean. And he said, oh, I, you know, he said, I, I don't think anybody wants to buy it. And I, I, I'll stop you there because Kelvin came to my house during that period. Did he? He talked to me about the problems at Torquay, how he was trying to prevent Thea Bristol from losing more money, if you like. And we had a really, really interesting talk and... He said to me, and I'm not saying it because it was me, but he said the worst decision I ever made was not having a chief executive mm. because no one knows how to run that football club. I'm trying to pick up the pieces. I'm trying to give advice. Mm. And I think he was going down blind alleys, not knowing what to do. Yeah. And I gave him my opinion of the club and how the things that we did, going back to rec recruitment, and I'll say this every time I'm asked the question, what is the most important part of management? Recruitment without any shadow of a doubt, you know. But Calvin came to me, we went through a, a discussion, but it was more of a, an in-depth, 
look at Torquay United and what had happened and how you could get it back on its track again. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. Well, when... when what a business. When, when uh, Kelvin told me he couldn't find anybody, I thought to myself, I was just trying to think. I, I mean, look, the last thing I wanted to do, believe it or not, was take over a football club. It wasn't in my interest. I mean, I, knew, I saw the stress he puts under a load of people. But I couldn't let the club die. So I said to Kelvin, look, I know all the people in the Bay with money, all the ones that are sponsored over the years, ones that pay, that say they can pay and don't pay, ones that pay and get you the cheque there the next day. So basically I tried to recruit 10 people at 50 grand each and I thought that'll see us through at least till we can get a decent buyer or somebody will buy the club. So when the crunch come to it, I literally found six people putting 30 grand in each. So that was like 180 grand, which wasn't enough to get us the fixtures for the next season. So one of the directors who lived in London gave us 30,000. He said, but I want it back once you've got the fixtures out. So I'm thinking 180 grand, we won't get. And the problem I had at the time, and going back to fans again, they had the trust. Now, I see fans all the time going, I want to take over a football club. We'll run a football club. They have not got the first Scooby-Doo about it. They really haven't. So I asked the trust, I said, right, how much money have you got to take over the club? And the lad said, we've got eight grand in the bank. I said, well, that'll about just cover the the food and drinks for the players at half time and that. And um, I I brought in a couple of lads to try and pacify them, which was my worst move ever. And then obviously I'd got to cut the budget down from... 850,000 and I cut it to 350,000 um, and I'd got to get rid of some staff who were on big money you know for the National League Yeah. Um, hence that's why I did what I had to do so we started off that season and I, I pulled in a lad called Paul Cox I'd managed against him when I was at Tensford he was Eastwood but he'd had a good record from when he left Eastwood he played he'd managed Mansfield got him out of the National League they played Liverpool in the fourth round the FA Cup he'd done really well and, and, and he'd rung me one day and he said oh he was in tears he said I can't get back in football he said have you got any contacts you know in America Can, and he, he literally was in tears and I said look I said we need somebody I said but it's going to be cheap but it could be a chance to put your career back on track and he said, no, no, I'm up for that. So he drove down from his house in Nottingham, came to see me. And I said, look, this is what we can offer you. I gave him Ellen Chamberlain's house. I gave him the sponsor, uh, big sponsor at the time, £50,000 car. I gave him £200 a week. His food was all free all week. So I'm working out the package and I'm thinking, this is a 50 grand, this is a 50 grand a year package. It's more than I was on. Yeah, so so anyway, he, he's come to me after a few games, about six or seven games, and we were doing all right with 16th, 17th in the National League. And he came to me and he said, uh, I want pain properly now. And I said, uh, okay. I said, so what are you talking about? He said, well, I want about 30, 40 grand. I said, not a problem. I said, you can have it. I said, but I'm taking the house off you. I'm taking the car off you. And I'm taking your meals off you. I said, and you won't be getting your 200 a week. Well, you will, but no. Mm. I said, so please yourself. I said, surely you can see. And he went, no, no. He said, I, I said, I want pain. I said, okay, well, you get paid. I said, but and anyway, he obviously got the ump about something and he decided to resign on the Friday night. So on the Friday night, he left me and John Ramshaw, who was his mate, in the doodah, basically. So we've gone to the game. We brought in Dan Lavercombe, who was a local lad, and I thought he'd be great for the club, young lad, but if he pulls off a blinder, you know, he, he's one lad for the future for us and makes some money. 
Hence it didn't. It went absolutely disastrously wrong. We got beat 7-3. So with, we went 1-0 up, right? So they've gone 3-1 in at half-time. Yeah. And I'm looking at the lads, even at 3-1, and I'm thinking, they've just down tools. They ain't, they're not trying a leg here. So the second half, it's gone 4-1, 5-1, 6-1. I'm thinking, okay. I'm thinking, oh, oh, this is going to be a record score for Torquay United. I couldn't get off the, I couldn't get out of the ground quick enough. So they beat a 7-3 in the end. But funnily enough, the lad who I bought in up front, Tyron Marsh, he scored two and he'd been sitting on the bench for weeks. It could have been seven each, that game. It could have been ten each. It was one of those games. So I went out on the pitch after the game and I looked round and I thought, and I'm looking at the people behind the scenes and I'm looking, I'm thinking, I can't do this no more. And I resigned. This is where the story that needs to get out because I was accused of taking the money that I shouldn't have had. But for me, that was my severance pay because I'd been at that club seven years. And as a, as a member of that football club, I took them to Wembley twice. I played. I scored in two finals, three semi-finals. I'd stop the chains going on the doors. The, the solvency firm were two hours from putting the chains on the doors, and I was fighting fires. Well, I think my nickname was Fireman Sam. I was putting out all kinds of fires and picking up the mess, basically, as Colin predicted would happen. So, when we did the deal for the what's it? A, a lot of the, the some of the board were were they hadn't got a clue. They were been men in the day and businessmen at night. And they, they hadn't got a clue about the way it was bought and anything like that, but they put their 30 grand in. So I hadn't put any money in because I hadn't basically got it. But I was bringing the consortium together. Now, if I'd have been a Peter Ribsdale or somebody like that, I'd have, been, I'd have made a fortune from that, that football club. But I didn't. So what I did say to the two lads, Dave Phillips and Steve Breed, I said, listen, when I leave this football club, I'm leaving with nothing. I said, so I want my severance pay at some stage. It's all agreed. So what happened then? I left and I bought a car for the manager to drive round in, the, you know, whoever's going to be the new manager. So I bought out my own personal money. So when I left, they gave me the money back for that and I think they gave me another £7,000 or something like that. So I said, okay. I said, when the new buyers come in, I said, you need to let me know. I said, because I still own 50% of the shares of this football club. They went, don't worry about it, Dino. As soon as we get a buyer, you'll, get, you'll be the first to get your cheque. So I said, OK, no problem. So off I went. Didn't hear from nobody at the football club for six months. Then all of a sudden, one night, I get nine missed phone calls. Um, Steve Breed. Hi, Dino. Uh, the club want them, the shares back. I went, right. I said, who's bought the club? Nobody. I said, come on, Steve. I said, give me a bit more credit than that. you know. And he said, uh, no, he said... Um, there's nobody buying the club they've just sold Angus McDonald and uh, they just want the shares back I said well I'll tell you what when you come with the buyer I said I'll give him the shares back I said but I ain't giving them for you to give him back and I said otherwise I said I want my, my severance money so they said oh no we can't do that I said well no problem I said there's no problem here is there I said I'll keep the shares I said and you keep your money Yeah. and he said no, no we will want a meeting with you again the Grand Hotel which must have been a good place for me and you. Well, I think Fitz had been there a few weeks before. So, so anyway, finishing the story off. Trail of disaster coming in. <laughs> right, carry on. Finish the story off the last couple of minutes. Uh, they met me at the Grand Hotel. They give me the rest of my wages for that year. And that was it. I walked away and that was the end of it. And I was like Colin. I thought, look, I had an absolutely 
cat in hell's chance of making that club work. But I was hoping that they would bring somebody in. And I even asked Colin to come back, didn't I? You I, did, I yeah. rang Colin up yeah. and said, Colin, will you please come back and put this football club right? And I also asked Kelvin Thomas to be... I think he'd left two weeks later, though, I think. Who? After, after my phone call. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I know that Kelvin Thomas asked him to be a chairman, and I think he was like, no chance. Yeah. And I also asked Mark <laughs> Bowen, who was my sort of advisor, who owns MB Insolvency, because I was asking him how we were dealing with the insolvency before the change went on the door. I said, will you come in as my chairman? I said, I don't want to be chairman. And he went, no. So we ended up having a local man called Dave Phillips who... Well, I'm going to leave it there. I think that was the end of the story. Let's leave it there. This has been brought to you courtesy of a sweaty moment. (laughs) (laughs) My thanks to the sponsors today, Greenwood Accountants and Wallen Solicitors. This has been Back on the Ball. Some tough talking today, but gentlemen, Dean Edwards and Colin Lee, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. We've got half our chest. Yeah. And my pants. (laughs) 